when you have a platform, it's incumbent upon you to use that platform to stand up for your principles, to stand up for what's right, to speak out on these things. Because otherwise, what's the point of being there? Just to, to, to have that status and have a nice, handsome salary and a good pension. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm your co-host, Nora Barrows-Friedman in California. And I'm Asa Winstanley in London. Hi, Nora. Hi, Asa. How are you? Um, I'm okay, but everything is terrible in the country. <laughs> and, and for that reason, I'm kind of glad to see that um, you're in the same boat as me. With yeah, everything. full it's solidarity across the Atlantic. For sure. Uh, we have a wonderful interview coming yeah. up in just a few minutes. Um, why don't you tell us who we have as our guest? Well, today we've got on Chris Williamson, the former Labour MP, um, who was pushed out of the party. In the end, he actually quit, but he was um, suspended by the Labour Party for telling the truth about the Labour anti-Semitism uh, so-called crisis, which is, you know, this long smear campaign against Jeremy Corbyn, against the left-wing yeah. popular grassroots membership of the Labour Party. Um, and he was the only MP, really, to speak the truth about it. So um, we'll, we, we've, got, we've got a great interview with him. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but before we go to Chris, um, we wanted to acknowledge the passing recently of the great journalist Robert Fisk. Um, yeah. He, I, I was lucky enough to meet him and and hang out with him several times during my tenure at Flashpoints at KPFA in Berkeley. Um, we had him on as a, you know, as a correspondent for for many 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 years, um, and. He was a giant. He was somebody who absolutely understood what it means to be a reporter holding the centers of power accountable for injustice and inhumanity and suffering and violence. Um, and his work, especially on, uh, you know, on Palestine and Lebanon, his just meticulous reporting uh, during the Sabra and Shatila massacres and in, in the aftermath, I, I, I mean, one of his books, Pity the Nation, which was all about those massacres, continues to be this foundational research um, that has inspired, you know, so many reporters like, like us. Yeah, yeah, such an important yeah. book. So anyway, we wanted to just acknowledge Robert Fisk and and the the mountain of incredible work that that he has done. Yeah, he was one of the last remaining journalists actually doing journalism within yeah. the mainstream that um, you know that you could actually read in mainstream yeah. newspapers. Very you know very few and far between an actual voice that was critical of of war and imperialism and uh, yeah. colonialism in you know without being didactic just sort of reporting th yeah. the facts really. right which is such a radical act these days um and yeah. uh to you know to to acknowledge and and celebrate the life and work of robert fisk we wanted to just play a clip from a documentary that came out last year uh, about him and his work um it's called this is not a movie let's go to a clip from that documentary and then we'll come back with chris williamson Stay tuned. It was certainly after Sabra Shatila that I started to think through what the job of a foreign correspondent was in a kind of detail that I'd never done before. From then onwards, I felt that nothing would stop me going in to look at these things and see them, that there was something different from just journalism, because these were the people who suffer, and they're the people we should be writing about. These people would want me to be here. These corpses would want me to tell their story. After this, I had a self-confidence in writing about brutality and war crimes I never would have had before. That's the end of allowing fear to make the decisions for you. That's the end of being frightened of gunmen and editors and being accused of being anti-Semitic. From now onwards, you tell the truth and that's it. 
British journalist, Channel 4 Television. Thank you. That was a clip from the documentary, This Is Not a Movie, about the veteran war reporter Robert Fisk, who passed away on October 30th in Ireland. Joining Nora and myself today on the EI podcast, we have with us Chris Williamson. Let's start off with recent events. Um, A lot has been happening in the Labour Party um, in the last month. Um, And could you talk a little bit about the crisis in the Labour Party since... Jeremy Corbyn was suspended. Yeah, I mean, I think the Labour Party is uh, going through an existential crisis, to be honest with you, which I don't think they can recover from. It's no longer a suitable vehicle to deliver socialism. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, it's dead as a vehicle for socialism. And I think uh, people, anti-imperialists, people who are socialists, I think our job should be to bury the Labour Party now and uh, build an alternative vehicle to that of the Labour Party, because... Uh, you know, it's controlled essentially by people in the Parliamentary Labour Party, bureaucrats who, in the, who are in the uh, obvious bureaucracy, and they they are not in any way, shape, or form signed up to a socialist program or indeed an ethical foreign policy. And I think this was unconscionable to to those uh, forces who were determined to bring down Jeremy Corbyn, bring down a, a socialist programme inside the Labour Party. And the way in which he, Jeremy's been treated now, he's in a sort of twilight zone, is the Labour MP who's not a Labour MP. I mean, he's gone through a process similar really to what happened to me. I was suspended from the party for, I mean, the accusations against me in large measure were for defending anti-Zionist Jewish members of the party who had been falsely accused of anti-Semitism. And then I was accused of a pattern of behavior and suspended and then readmitted to the party and then resuspended again. I took high court action against the party. Three preliminary hearings to try and get an expedited uh, high court hearing. And after the third hearing, because the Labour Party were trying to delay it, uh, I I was arguing that we needed an early hearing because of the general uh, election. And in the end, the judge at the third preliminary hearing set a date. And then I was issued six days before the High Court hearing with a third suspension, saying irrespective of the outcome of the uh, existing suspension, you will remain suspended uh, on more even absurd absurd and ridiculous trumped-up charges which were put to me. So the Labour Party is in a very difficult place, and it has been for some time. And I think the problem started really from the point that Jeremy Corbyn was elected as the leader. It started a little bit before that, actually. And I think where they went wrong, where the leadership went wrong, where Jeremy went wrong, was in not actually defending his reputation and defending the Labour Party's reputation and standing up for what I've described as his Praetorian Guard. I think Jeremy should have got behind Ken Livingstone, actually, when when he was uh, thrown under the bus. He was the first high profile. There were others that were before him, people like Tony Greenstein, a long-standing member, Jewish member, who's the son of a rabbi. Uh, who was thrown out, who was accused of anti-Semitism. But I think Ken, obviously, that did attract a lot of attention, a lot of publicity, and I think that was the time I defended Ken, but I was the only MP to do so. Others were running scared of the, um, well, of the Zionist lobby, if we're honest about it. I mean, and others jumped on that bandwagon. It It was given legs, it was given energy by the response of the leadership. The people around Jeremy were giving him very bad advice to try to draw a line under it by apologizing, by appeasing, by capitulating. It was, it was a recipe for disaster. And where we are now is where I predicted we would be three years ago. In fact, we dug out a speech on the day that Jeremy was suspended that I'd given about three years ago, where I'd predicted exactly this. And uh, it gives me no pleasure to say, I told you so, but 
unfortunately, the Socialist Campaign Group, the people around Jeremy Corbyn in the leader's office were just impervious to my exhortations. And there were others as well making those representations outside of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And it's a tragedy, frankly, what's happened. We had a, a unique opportunity, in my opinion, to transform Britain to embark on a, a genuine ethical foreign policy where Britain would gain a reputation for spreading peace and disarmament around the world instead of war and arms sales. And we'd have had someone in 10 Downing Street who had a long-standing record of support for the Palestinian cause, support for the Palestinian people. And I would like to think someone who would have called out the Israeli regime and demanded that they honor their international law obligations. But that's why I think Jeremy was particularly targeted. Uh, I mean, clearly, his socialist credentials didn't go down well with many, but it was his foreign policy position, I think, which, which really brought on the ire of uh, yeah. very, very powerful vested interests. Not, I mean, the Zionist lobby, but also, of course, the military-industrial complex. Let's yeah. remember, they, 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 they make enormous profits from instability around the world, selling arms and... For somebody to come in who was going to sort of you know potentially put a stop to that 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 was just beyond the pale and, and they did everything in their power to do that i mean there was a general let's not forget who went on the record just after jeremy was uh, elected as leader saying that they would not tolerate a labor government that cut defense spending withdrew from nato or scrapped trident and i think he used words to the effect of we'll use fair means or foul yeah that's treason yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, the guy got away with it. Yeah. This is the forces that we were up against. And uh, unfortunately, we, we didn't, um, you know, we didn't handle it appropriately. I mean, I think, as I say, I think if we'd have fought them, if we'd have stood up to them, um, as Mick McGarhy, the great National Union of Mine Workers leader, used to say, they'll stop chasing you when you stop running. And that's what I kept saying. But unfortunately, they kept running and yeah. caught them up now. So, Chris... Yeah, to me, what was significant um, about the way you were targeted by the Israel lobby, Chris, was that they went for you right from the beginning of when you were first uh, re-elected to Parliament mm. in 2017. They um, they really targeted you, and the reason for that really was that um, you were the only MP who was saying anything about the manufactured anti-semitism campaign you were the only one who could who who was brave enough frankly to say anything about it and to say yeah this is this is what's happening you know in that first interview that you did with the guardian um you said well you know i'm not saying anti-semitism never happens um uh, you know clearly it does sometimes but what's actually happening in this um all these headlines about supposed anti-Semitism in the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn is that it's it's a smear campaign, and mm. you were the only MP who who said that, you know. And it mm. didn't make that many headlines at first, you know. It wasn't the, what the Guardian led with in there. In no. it, it was towards the end of the interview, you know. But the the Israel lobbyists noticed it, and and you've told me, and and they, and they they targeted uh you straight away from the from the beginning so all the stuff later that came later about the reasons that you were suspended from the labor party to me was absolutely a prefect a pretext you know oh it was and and it's quite it's quite clear it's quite it's quite interesting um and this is something that um jackie walker you know another mm. um comrade of ours who uh, another uh, who was also targeted in the same um smear campaign she's pointed out that uh, how what they're doing now to Jeremy Corbyn is actually quite almost identical in a lot of ways to what um, they did with you. Like they, they'll probably, mm. you know, they've, they've now, so he's now, um, it's, he's in a confusing sort of situation. Yes. He's, um, he was suspended as a member of the Labour Party. Um, and which, which means that he was automatically uh, suspended as a Labour MP, although yeah. he was still an MP albeit an independent M MP. That was a, the brief situation for a few weeks. And then he was unsuspended as a Labour Party member. So he's back now as a Labour Party member, which would yes. normally mean he would be a Labour Party MP. Exactly. But Keir Starmer <clears throat> made the decision, uh, has now also made the decision that he will be suspended for at least three weeks um, from, the, from, the Labour, for, uh, from the whip. 
uh, from the, the, the Labour group in Parliament. So he's an MP and a Labour member, but for the moment, he's not a Labour MP. So it's kind of a confusing situation. My view is what will happen, most likely to happen, is they'll, they'll contrive another reason to have him suspended from the party, and then that will become a pattern of behaviour, quote-unquote, this sort of Kafkaesque situation that, that happened with you. Do you. I mean, do you think that's likely to? I don't think it's absolutely almost certain to happen. And I couldn't believe it. When I was suspended, I'd given 44 years of my life nearly to the Labour Party. I was a dedicated Labour activist right from the get-go, campaigned in every single election from 1977. I joined in 1976, was active in between elections, and every almost every waking hour I was kind of thinking or doing something for the Labour Party. I'd been a councillor, chair of the Housing Committee, leader of the council in Derby MP on two occasions when I lost my seat I continued obviously campaigning for the uh, for the party and when I was suspended a couple of uh, uh, long-standing members contacted me uh, to urge me to go on a speaking tour because they felt that I was they were seeking to expel me and I couldn't believe it I was in denial I mean I just thought no I mean I've given my life to this party surely this guy this is almost like it's a mistake and I mean I think Jeremy's in that kind of space at the moment really I mean he'd been in the Labour Party even longer than me uh, and obviously been leader of the Labour Party and uh, it just seemed I'd never seen I look this, this has never happened before this kind of behavior um, we saw under the Kinnock era which was bad enough the witch hunt against the uh, militant so-called militant uh, tendency in the party that was appalling interestingly um, Jeremy Corbyn and others um, were, were very much involved in a campaign against the witch hunt. In those days, you used to be able to speak out. There was a semblance of freedom of speech inside the Labour Party to, albeit they weren't necessarily listening, but at least you were able to express solidarity and support. Now, if you show solidarity and support to someone, that's used as a pretext to suspend you. So I think Jeremy is on a course to be expelled. They're going to find some sort of reason to, to do that. I mean, I, I, I suspected they might even use the EHRC as a, as a pretext to suspend him. I know this had been trailed and there'd been speculation. I think you may have even reported on this actually, Asa, uh, months previous. Um, but I kind of thought, ah, would he do that? I mean, it's going to be incredibly politically damaging. And then, obviously, within a few hours of the publication of the EHRC report, uh, he was suspended. Yeah, I then, was surprised course, by the speed of that too. Yes, indeed. And then, of course, he was, uh, you know, readmitted. And uh, uh, and then that's been circumvented by the leader of the party. So I think they're on a course to to expel him. They're going to find any pretext. And I think what they're determined to do, essentially, is to, you know, drive out any semblance, as I've already said, I think, of of a socialist proposition inside the Labour Party or indeed any any last vestiges of a commitment to an ethical foreign policy. That That is just not something they're prepared to to go along with. They are very much the Parliamentary Labour Party tied into the Israel lobby. Uh, when I was a member, I'm not sure what the figures are now, but when I was a, a member, uh, over half the Parliamentary Labour Party were members of the so-called Labour Friends of Israel. Um, very supportive, many of them, of the arms industry, of Trident. Um, and I mean, they often dress it up as, as it's important to protect jobs. But of course, as we know, and this was demonstrated by the Lucas uh, uh, aerospace shop stewards combine in 1976 who produced a report demonstrating how they could use their technical skills to build create socially useful products you could actually with this with the with the with the funding which is going into trident for example you could actually create many more high-tech high-skill well you know paid high value jobs than what are being um, generated through through trident so yeah, yeah, Jeremy's, uh, you know, is, is, in a, is, in a, is in a bad place, I think. And there are still people clinging to the notion that somehow if we stay in the party, if they stay in the party, there's this group called Don't Leave Organise, which is encouraging people to remain in the party. Although a lot of people are just voting with their feet and leaving, they're not prepared to tolerate it. And indeed, one of the leading members of Don't Leave Organise, uh, Ian Hodson from the Bakers Union, the Bakers Union are now consulting their members about whether they should disaffiliate from the Labour Party. I hope they do. In fact, I'm involved in a in a campaign now to encourage. Well, that's really to, significant because the the, Baker, the Bakers Union, um, which is probably one of the more left wing unions in the UK, was I think the first 
certainly one of the first uh, unions in 2015 to endorse Jeremy Corbyn's leadership oh, yes, campaign. That's right. right? They were, they were. I mean, and, and I hope they're the, they're, they're the start of a flood because the Labour Party can no longer claim to be the political voice of the organised working class. I mean, they're more interested in representing the interests of the uh, corporate capitalists and, um, yeah. you know, uh, foreign, foreign uh, uh, sort of um, governments like the kind of uh, Netanyahu regime seem to be determined not to do anything which could uh, be seen as uh, criti criticising that regime. I mean, they do get the occasional mild criticism, but it's, but it's very... It's very uh, uh, tame. It's, it's very constrained, isn't it? It is, um, yeah. You've is. mentioned a little bit the EHRC report, um, mm. which uh, is a reference for our listeners who don't know, don't know to the Equality and uh, Human Rights Commission, which is this uh, government uh, supposed watchdog. Uh, it's supposed to combat um, racism. It, you know, it's got it's mandated under British law to combat racism. But it's come under a lot of uh, criticism, and uh, there was been a recent uh, parliamentary report as well about it, um, which has criticised the HRC as well. Um, you've done some uh, a really good video about the HRC and how it wasn't how it's not fit for purposes. I think you put it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a really partisan organisation, frankly, and it really from from the outset it was very close to the new Labour government uh, there's been criticism that it's actually itself institutionally racist uh, there are no black or muslim commissioners uh, two of the black and muslim commissioners that were on the ruling body were removed and they were criticized for being too loud on the issue of race believe it or not uh, there has been An anti-racism body where the commissioners were criticized you, for being exactly, too I mean, loud it's, on it's, you know it's a real absurdity so no there are there are real question marks over the organization it seems very close to the conservative party today um very reluctant to criticize the conservative party i mean compared to the accusations against uh, the, against the labor party uh, i mean the most of which are manufactured or concocted accusations of anti-semitism but you compare that to the egregious uh, islamophobia uh, and other forms of racism that senior members of the conservative party are on the right including the prime minister um and the muslim council of britain um put together a you know detailed representations to the ehrc calling on them to mount a investigation into the conservative party and they decided that they wouldn't do that that the conservative party was capable of um, putting its own house in order i mean frankly i don't think in any event a, a public body like the ehrc has any business interfering in the affairs of a political party in any event actually but given what they did to the labor party all the hyperbole surrounding that the 18 month long investigation which they then came up with two cases as we know that they could try and pin some sort of uh, accusation of harassment of the jewish community on hardly institutional anti-semitism or, or or indication of a major problem with the labor party but when you have, you know, as I say, very senior members of the party from the prime minister down and many, many activists and lots and lots of documented cases of really appalling, outrageous racism from the Conservative Party to then say that they are capable of putting their own house in order. They can, you know, look at themselves. Uh, we don't need to be involved. It, it really illustrates the partisan nature of this organisation. It's not fit for purpose. And I've made that very clear. It should be it should be wound up and closed down. It's quite interesting how the uh, EHRC was asked by, like you said, it was a, a months-long investigation, you know, uh, 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 17, 18 months investigation into the Labour Party. They were asked by two, uh, the HRC was asked by two pro-Israel groups, mm. um, Israel lobby groups, the campaign against anti-Semitism, which is really badly named because it's actually, as Tony Greenstein's put it, a campaign against Palestinians, um, yes, number one. And number two, the Jewish Labour Movement, which is a very... A group which is of as i've reported very cl close proximity to the israeli embassy but they both both of those groups asked the hrc to investigate the labor party for what they claim was institutional anti-semitism and after this um you know epic investigation they concluded that there was two cases of anti-semitism 
two two cases of anti-Semitism that had broken the law in their view. I mean, and, and they're questionable. Exactly. Yeah, and one of them was was Ken Livingstone. You know, that's he, correct. He'd supported another. It was anti-Semitic because he'd supported another MP who'd made a, a, a you know criticism of Israel. Well, posted, posted see, that, that MP all she did was to, um, uh, I think there were one or two other alleged misdemeanors, but the thing that got a lot of publicity was sharing a meme that had been created by Norman Finkelstein, yeah, prominent Jewish academic. Um, no, again, that was another concocted pile of nonsense. And, and ironically, Ken was seeking to demonstrate solidarity as socialists do. I mean, it's kind of... Uh, uh, you know, cornerstone really of, of what socialism is about, you know, is an injury to one is an injury to all. And, uh, you know, and he was seeking to express his solidarity with her. And then that that was used, uh, his support for her and uh, some comment that he made in an interview about Zionism. I mean, he was quoting an historical fact about the yeah. Havara agreement. Uh, and that was whipped up into some sort of uh, nonsense about him being some sort of Nazi apologist. It was absolutely outrageous. I mean, the yeah. person who should have been disciplined over that whole affair was a MP called John Mann who doorstepped Ken on the way into a, a broadcast studio with a camera crew in tow shouting in his face screaming actually in his face that that, that Ken was a Nazi apologist I mean Ken makes the point that actually after he'd been on the radio broadcasting question and referenced the Havara agreement there was no response no reaction really for two or three hours until such time as as um, the incident involving this character called John Mann. It was a Labour MP at the time, but has now been elevated to the House of Lords um, on the recommendation of the Conservative Party to be their anti-Semitism anti czar. <laughs> yeah, the, the concept of an anti-Semitism czar is it, quite an ironic one. It is. Considering you know, like the anti-Semitic role actually, yeah. of the historical yeah. czars. Exactly. Um, Chris, yeah. I wanted to ask you about um, the role that uh, the IHRA has played in all of this and kind of mm. the rise of this, you know, witch hunt um, against critics of Zionism and critics of Israeli yes. policy. Um, I mean, we're seeing, you know, the, the flood of the, uh, you know, silencing campaigns here mm. in the States as well, um, using yes. and, uh, and exploiting um, you know, real anti-Semitism in order to serve Israel's policy agenda yeah. um, and, and defend Israel from criticism at all costs. Can you talk a little bit about how the IHRA, um, and it, it's the International Holocaust Remembrance yeah. Alliance's uh, definition um, of, so, of anti-Semitism um, that conflates critiques of Zionism and critiques of Israel with anti-Semitism. Um, exactly. Can you talk it's about had a, a, it's had a very pernicious impact, a chilling effect yeah. on on free speech. There's no doubt about that. And in fact, I've joined forces with um, three other people who've been uh, targeted by the uh, witch hunt that the IHRA facilitated: Jackie Walker, um, Tony Greenstein, and Mark Wadsworth, two Jewish members and a, a long-standing black activist, Mark Wadsworth, who was accused of anti-Semitism. I mean, Mark is an incredible, uh, strong activist who spent his life fighting racism. And he introduced, funnily enough, he introduced Nelson Mandela to the Stephen Lawrence family in, uh, in England, who Stephen was a, a young black lad who was attacked by racists, murdered, in fact, by racists. And the, the perpetrators got away with it. And uh, ultimately, a private prosecution was, was brought. And there was a long-standing campaign. But Mark was a key advisor to the family and when Nelson Mandela visited the country Mark was ferrying him around and introduced the family to uh, Nelson Mandela and uh, that alone actually elevated that that story that case to the international stage but um, as a consequence of the adoption of the IHRA that's then been used as a pretext to target more people and you know many people including many Jewish members of the party actually and non-members but you know, people in the Jewish community in the country had made the argument that this was an incredibly bad move to consider adopting it. And it's interesting to look, well, who was pushing for it? It was all the enemies of Jeremy Corbyn that were pushing for it. All the, you know, the, 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 the kind of pro-Zionist lobby were, were pushing for it. I mean, what, why were they pushing for that? I mean, it's very clear why they were doing it, because they knew it would make it easier then to, to attack people. I think it was Tony Greenstein who said that, you know, 
the actual concept of, of anti-Semitism uh, is relatively straightforward, you know, kind of uh, hatred of, uh, of, of Jews and so on, discriminating, discrimination against Jews. He said the Oxford Dictionary definition is perfectly uh, adequate uh, definition. You don't need uh, however many words, is it 550 odd words or whatever, to define what anti-Semitism is, unless, of course, you want to bring in criticism of Israel into the into the definition. So, you know, the adoption of the of the IHRA, um, which has been criticised even by the original authors of it. I mean, this is the irony of it. They were saying it's not fit for purpose and it's being used to chill free speech. So the, the original authors are making this point, And yet still the Labour Party is going ahead. I remember going and uh, speaking at the request, actually, of um, the Jewish Voice for Labour uh, at a rally outside the Labour Party National Executive Committee meeting outside the head office of the party. There's a big rally outside, hundreds of people there, many of whom, probably the vast majority of whom, were Jewish members, actually, who were dead against the adoption of the IHRA. There was a small counter-demonstration. The, the way the media covered it, of course, it, it kind of gave a, equal weight. The way they framed the pictures, a lot of that was almost as many people in the counter-demonstration. They were literally not. There was about a dozen uh, at, at tops that were, that were there. Very, very kind of um, uh, offensive. Um, one chap was always trying to do an interview with this media scrum after I'd given my speech, which was, uh, what did he say? Something like, I was, um, I was a disgrace. I was eating the scum of Corbyn's plate. I was a Labour fascist, apparently. This guy, though, apparently is, is associated with the uh, EDL, <laughs> ironically. So a guy who's, who associates with fascists, out and out fascists, was, anyway. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a nonsense, but it, it has certainly been used in a very pernicious way. And uh, that, so that was a major mistake. That was another massive, massive error of judgment, I think, um, on the part of the, of the party. And Jeremy went along with it in the end. I think that was a huge mistake. The leadership of Momentum, they were pushing for it. They tried to modify it at first, but that modification in order to provide for free speech on Palestine still. Um, but that was then, I mean, they capitulated on that as well. There's just been capitulation over and over and over again. If ever there was a definition of Einstein's, um, um, if ever there was an example, should I say, of Einstein's definition of insanity, it's the way the Labour Party has responded to this whole crisis. I think it's really important for our listeners to understand, you know, where you're coming from as, as a politician, as mm. someone in solidarity with Palestinians. Um, you know, when you joined Labour um, and became an MP, um, you know, what was the atmosphere like um, in terms of pushing for a, a policy that respected and upheld the rights of Palestinians, you know, back in the 70s? Um, and, and, and how have you held so tenaciously to these fundamental beliefs of, of human rights? Well, I mean, when I first was elected to the party, I joined the Labour Party in the mid-1970s. And uh, if I'm honest, I, I never gave that much attention to foreign policy issues. As a local politician, I was mainly focused on, on local issues in the city that I represented in Derby, where I was the councillor and then council leader. And it was when I became an MP that I, I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't interested in foreign policy issues, but I never, you know, took, took um, as big an interest in it and, and campaigned on it as much as I did when I became an MP. But when you're a, an MP with a national platform, I felt it was important then to, to kind of speak out on some of these issues. So I made it my business to, to speak out, not just on Palestine, but on Latin American issues and, and, and foreign policy issues across the peace. Really. I'm no expert on these things, but I just felt, you know, these are really important. And, and I guess as an MP, you do, you know, people approach and, you, you know, so things that I frankly wasn't necessarily aware of previously, uh, I then became aware of. And I feel that when you have a platform, it's incumbent upon you to use that platform to stand up for your principles, to stand up for what's right, to speak out on these things. Because otherwise, what's the point of being there? Just to, to, to have that status and have a nice handsome salary and a good pension. I mean, some people might say I was a fool because I threw away a, a, a handsome salary and, and, a, and, a, and a nice pension. But I, I just, I don't regret it because I, I feel it's important that you can live with yourself and that you can look yourself in the mirror in the sense. And and so I guess in that in that first parliament that I was a member, because I got elected in 2010, I lost my seat in 2015 by narrowest, narrowest of margins. It came back again when Jeremy, uh, after Jeremy was elected in, in the following election in 2017. In that 2010 to 2015 parliament, I was raising these issues. I was speaking out on Latin American issues. I was speaking out on Palestinian issues, actually. I remember Gerald Kaufman, the longstanding Jewish who sadly passed away now, uh, Jewish uh, MP, very strong supporter and advocate for the Palestinian cause. Uh, I remember him seeking me out and, and, and sort of 
shaking my hand and congratulating me and saying, oh, you, you, are you the young man? I'm not that young, actually, but anyway, I was younger than, <laughs> younger than Jeff. He said, are you the young man that, that put those questions in about questions? Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Keep going, keep going. You know, you're really encouraging, you know. So I was raising those issues and um, I didn't actually go on the delegation, but people, you know, on the left in the party had gone on delegations to, to, to Palestine. They were coming back with these, these horrific tales and so on. And under Miliband's leadership, the, you know, the party uh, supported a motion in the House uh, recognizing the Palestinian state. I mean, frankly, I think, you know, the, the two-state solution, of course, is a, is a nonsense. But, you know, it was a step um, in, in the sort of right direction, in a sense. I mean, that was deemed unconscionable. And, and even Ad Miliband, who's a Jewish um, leader, who was a Jewish leader of the party, he was accused himself of, of anti-Semitism and uh, came under attack. Um, Nothing as virulent, though, as what we saw after Jeremy. In that parliament, um, I never come under any great criticism, I've got to say. There were no real attacks, no dogpiling on me um, for the positions that I was taking in support of the Palestinian people. And as I say, I was, you know, putting lots and lots of questions down and, you know, raising the matter on the floor of the House. Um, and uh, I guess it was because they didn't really see us as a major threat, really. I mean, Ed Miliband was more or less a wasn't exactly continuity new Labour, but it wasn't going to really shake up the, the status quo that much, if truth be told, both domestically and indeed on the international stage. And I suppose they didn't really see us as a threat. This all is a bit of an irrelevant, really. I mean, you know, you think of some of the positions that Jeremy had taken up uh, during that time, which subsequently were then used against him and received, you know, huge media attention, trawling through positions he'd taken at the time, never really generated that. It was only when Jeremy became the uh, the leader, and I mean, I got behind Jeremy from the start, although I wasn't in Parliament, I campaigned to want to get him onto the ballot paper, then campaigned to get him nominated by constituencies and then voted in, as it were. And it was really then that the pressure started to build. I mean, I was subjected to a, an attack that was um, precipitated by uh, Ian Austin, who was another so-called Labour MP who uh, has been elevated to the House of Lords thanks to the Conservatives. In fact, he was, he was urging people to vote Conservative at the last election. Um, but I'd, uh, I'd had a bit of a tussle with him. And, uh, uh, well, whilst I wasn't in Parliament, over social media and over the Palestinian question. And he organised a, 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 a really concerted sort of, uh, you know, dogpiling attack on me. You know, I was uh, piled on, on on social media. There were articles produced about me. This man is a bigot. This man has no place in the Labour Party. And, uh, and I was astonished, you know. I mean, it's nothing to, 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 to compare to what it turned into when I was uh, subsequently elected, or indeed what Jeremy and, and others have been subjected to. But, I, you know, I mean, it took me by surprise, I've got to say. I mean, I just, it really was quite something to see. You know, the level of vitriol that was spewing from the, the mouths of the... Uh, the kind of Zionist advocates, the people like Ian Austin and, 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 and others, he was particularly egregious, uh, though. Um, it, it, was, it was quite something. Uh, as I said, I'd never seen anything like it. I really hadn't. And, you know, the way the Board of Deputies, uh, uh, Board of Deputies British Jews, uh, the so-called Jewish Leadership Council, uh, the, the Jewish Labour Movement. I mean, after that uh, interview that you mentioned in The Guardian, Apparently, the the Jewish leadership, sorry, the Jewish labour movement had a had a meeting, a conference, or something that that autumn. And I'm told, I mean, obviously, I wasn't there, but I was the the main point of conversation because of the position I taken. I was, I said, you're kidding, really? Are they really? What's quite often said about you is that you um, were suspended from the Labour Party because you said that the party had been too apologetic about anti-Semitism, but mm. that's not really, that's not the case. Like you didn't say that you said that, um, no, anti-Semitism is reverse of what I said in reality. Yeah, you said, you said anti-Semitism is, is, is a terrible thing. And, um, that the Labour party had been too apologetic about, uh, the smears that had been used against the party. So. Yeah, well, I'm too apologetic about the way in which we'd responded to it. Because, I mean, yeah. you know, the Labour Party had, I mean, some of it I didn't agree with, like the adoption of the IHRA. But the point I was making is the Labour Party has done more than any other party to 
address the scourge of anti-Semitism wasn't a precise words, yeah. but we're being demonized as a bigoted racist party. Uh, yeah. And the reason for that was because we'd been, you know, too apologetic about our record in, 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 in fighting anti-Semitism. And the point I was trying to make is, look, you know, the Labour Party's got a long history going back uh, you know, many, many decades of, of fighting racism. And I'm, I'm sure there are probably some racists, some bigots, some uh, misogynists inside the Labour Party. I've got to say, in my 44 years as a party member, I never witnessed anti-Semitism. Uh, I did witness some marginal misogyny. I did witness some Islamophobia. Very, very marginal, uh, I've got to say. I've spoken to a number of uh, Jewish uh, uh, comrades who long-standing members of the Labour Party. In fact, between them, I think they, were, they had 200 years of membership of the Labour Party, and only one of them said they'd ever experienced an incident of anti-Semitism on one occasion, and that was in 1970. This is not a major problem. It's a, it's a confected crisis. And uh, as I've already said, it was given legs. It was made worse by the reaction of the party, the reaction of the leadership, by continually uh, apologizing. I mean, whoever advised it to Jeremy to go and meet with the Jewish Leadership Council and the board of deputies to go and prostrate himself essentially before these this this the Zionist this these two Zionist groups you know I could have written the press statement that they would have going to issue after that and they said what a waste of time it was he wasn't taking the issue seriously etc it was a disastrous strategy utterly disastrous and it only just yeah. made them stronger because they thought we've got him on the run here let's keep chasing him and I was going back to what Mick McGarhy said you know, they'll stop chasing you when you stop running. And they never stop running. They never stop running. Yeah, this, this is the thing. So the thing about um, the, uh, the speech where you made, where you said um, it, they'd been, uh, the Labour Party had been uh, too apologetic. Um, mm. To me, like, the focus on that was, that was never why you were suspended. That was a pretext because it was very clear they were looking for something before that. Yes, of course. They and were, they yeah. actually, uh, what, it act, what you were actually suspended for, and I followed this quite closely, was the fact that you'd booked um, a film in a room in Parliament um, yes. uh, about, about the smear campaign, <laughs> which focused well, on Jackie film, Walker. Was, that's right. It was the film Witch Hunt. Uh, ironically, I'd been asked by Jewish members of the party to show a film about attacks on anti-Zionist Jews and virtually everybody appearing in the film were from a Jewish heritage. And that was deemed to be unconscionable. That was deemed to be a further example of my anti-Semitism, of my, of my uh, Jew-baiting tendency. I mean, it's just horrendous. And the right-wing Labour MPs who were saying this and getting mm. you attacked in the Parliamentary Labour Party, uh, yes. led by Ruth Smith. Correct. A, a former professional Israel lobbyist for absolutely uh, Bicom. Um, they and an asset for none the, of them had uh, seen it. None of them had seen the film. They were no, exactly. It was no, 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 absolutely. Which absolutely yeah. is not anti-Semitic. So it's a very good film for sure. And I remember at the at the at the final parliamentary Labour Party meeting, uh, the day before I was or two days before I was suspended, I. Uh, I spoke at that. Jeremy was speaking on the issue of Brexit and I was asked by his office to go along and, and be there and support him and speak. And I said, are you sure you want me there? Because they hate me. Every time I get up, I get shouted down and, <laughs> you know, they duly did. And I mean, it was it was it was probably the word is like an orchestrated. I mean, it wasn't just kind of shouting me down. It was, it was literally an orchestrated howling down of, 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 of anything I was saying. And ironically, what I was calling for at one point was to say, look, I was quoting Joe Cox, which was, you know, beyond the pale for many of them. Uh, but uh, I'd said, look, she said, there's more that unites us and divides us. I know we've all got kind of, you know, a different sort of political sense of what is, uh, you know, should be prioritised. But, but ultimately, we all want to reach the same destination, don't we? We all joined the Labour Party, didn't we? Because we believed in social justice, because we believed in an ethical foreign policy. I'm not sure actually they did either of those things in reality. But you know, I said, can't we find it within ourselves to work together to, you know, get behind Jeremy and to, to fight for a Labour government, to fight for a Labour victory? And um, I was absolutely, you know, I, I can't believe the, I can't, exp I can't express just, just the, the volume of, and, and, and of hate that was, these are people who are supposed to be kind of, you know, policymakers, lawmakers, I mean, behaving like thugs, like football hooligans, if truth be told. 
And um, as I say, shortly after that, I, well, two days after that, but at that meeting, Ruth Smith made the point. She, she got up and said, it's been brought to my attention that one of our number, I don't know who, but I can promise you I will find out, has booked a room to screen the film Witch Hunt. At which point there was like, it was almost like a, like a, uh, a pantomime with the, with the way in which they, the sharp intake of breath from, from two or 300 members of the Parliamentary Labour Party, because it's not just MPs, it's, it's members of the House of Lords in there as well. They almost sucked the oxygen out of the room. There was such a sharp intake of breath by so many of them. And then shouts of shame, shame, who is it? And then, they, then there's a chorus of, oh, it's you, Chris, doesn't it? Well done, Chris. Well done, Chris. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, I mean, it's pathetic. You know, I mean, I mean, just, it's some, you know, I mean uh, Jonathan Rosenhead from Jewish Voice for Labour, uh, which was the, the group that was was uh i i believe had asked you to book that film right Is yes that correct? that's correct yeah, yeah. uh jonathan rosehead who's, who's a long time uh anti-apartheid activist um you know against uh apartheid in south africa and and uh in favor of the uh, academic boycott of israel mm. uh, in in more recent years he's called this whole situation um uh, a moral panic over anti-semitism mm. uh, you know alleged anti-semitism in the labor party yeah. and just the sheer irrationality of it and sort of groupthink is really yes. astonishing to behold at times and and that exact that meeting that you know you told me about at the time in the parliamentary labor party where they're all sort of screaming and shouting at you and sort of baying baying for yeah. your head is yeah just one of the most extreme examples of it i think Oh, really? Absolutely. And all the media, all the journalists were, were outside recording this. I mean, there's one guy from Politics Home was doing a running commentary about my speech because they could hear. Because I was having to shout really loud because they were shouting me down. And uh, I could see Jeremy on a few occasions nudging the chair to trying to call them to order. And um, but they weren't really kind of interested in that. And uh, but this guy was doing a running commentary and uh, he was pointing out how they were kind of jeering me for saying that urging people to come together in unity you know? and uh, my, my position in support for Brexit. And of course, they were, they were not uh, at all supportive of that. And, and it finished off this guy in his, in his commentary on the, uh, on the uh, uh, meeting where he'd said, uh, one prominent uh, MP has just walked out mid-Williamson, as he put it, uh, saying at the top of his voice, I can't listen to any more of that. I won't say the word, but I'll spell it out for you. I can't listen to any more of that CT. And then he finished off uh, his commentary on the uh, on that particular part of the uh, meeting by saying, "This is the PLP in action, folks." I mean, you know, it made the party, well, the MPs, look like a rabble, which I think they were quite happy because they there were no way they wanted to see, as we know from the leaked report, they no way they wanted to see uh, Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government. Although the point I was making to Jeremy to the so-called socialist campaign group that we have to reform this party, we have to democratise this party, it's essential that we get these democracy reforms through, because if we win an election with this Parliamentary Labour Party, we won't be able to deliver our programme anyway. And yeah. all that hope and expectation invested in a Corbyn-led Labour government will be dashed and it will create even greater cynicism in the democratic process than already exists. Yeah, because I mean, some this, people this, just this, say, well, they're it, all the same, it, even it, Corbyn. Exactly, like, this is the point that uh, we at the Electronic Intifada were, were always trying to make. Like, we're, we get accused of um, conspiracy theories and mm. of, you know, saying that the Israel lobby is in control of everything. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Like, it, the, the, the point we were trying to make is that uh, if Jeremy Corbyn didn't, the, the, the fact that he didn't adequately stand up to the Israel lobby meant that there was no way in hell he was going to stand up to capitalism. No, to, no, you know, to the arms industry, uh, no, exactly. Bank of England, civil servants, mm. um, and the British deep state, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's, Palestinians are too often first under the bus and it's, it's, yeah. it's the canary in the coal mine. It is. You're right. I mean, and, uh, you know, absolutely. If we, if we couldn't, you know, withstand that, then what hope did we have? I mean, the economic prospectus that we were going into was, was a false prospectus anyway. Uh, we were playing on the Conservatives' uh, territory, it seems to me, you know, continuing to talk about tax and spend, when in reality, as a currency-issuing nation with the fifth biggest economy in the world, you know, literally money is no object. I mean, uh, that is the truth of it. I mean, you only have to look to the, to the states to see the way in which you know, money is, is generated by the National uh, Fed. And, 
Yeah, I mean, the same is true here. We're not, you know, we, we, we've got, we had the wrong economic perspective. I mean, you know, it was a decent agenda and uh, it would have been certainly better than um, anything that's been gone before for the last 40 plus years. But, uh, you know, we needed to go a lot further in other areas. And, you know, it wasn't just, you know, the kind of foreign policy agenda and, and so on. I mean, and as I say, we'd got the wrong economic prospectus. And if we weren't, if we couldn't even withstand this, then, you know, as you say, um, we would be in, in, in real difficulty, I think, to have withstood the pressure that would have no doubt come on the party, uh, the, well, the Labour government. I mean, you know, we know from the record that there was efforts to overthrow, uh, or certainly there was moves afoot anyway, to overthrow the Harold Wilson government uh, back in the, uh, you know, 60s, 70s. So, um, a corporate-led government was, my goodness, you know. And that's one of the reasons as well why I was saying it's so essential, I and mean, this is again with Jeremy's position in terms of the importance of a social movement, to have a grassroots movement, because I was, you know, again, you, people can think, you oh, you're being a conspiracy theorist, but I was convinced that if we were to get a, a, a Labour government with a, with a, with a programme that we were putting forward at that time, that we would desperately need a, a grassroots social movement to be on the streets defending that government because there would be real efforts to overthrow it. I mean, and as I say, it's, it's, it's not me just being fanciful. You know, we know that this was, was something that was being actively considered um, back when, when Harold Wilson was, was prime minister. I mean, they were talking about putting Lord Mountbatten in as a kind of, uh, you know, interim head, as it were, and, uh, you know, the military sort of... Um, rowing in and uh, I mean it's incredible to think that that could have uh, in the country you know in the country which is the mother of parliaments that would be um, you know not that far away from that something like that happening and uh, the only defense I felt would be to have a mobilized mass movement but yeah I mean it never never came to pass so we never got the chance to put that into that theory into practice. So the movement that brought Jeremy Corbyn to the leadership of the Labour Party, the popular movements, the, the kind of brief moment of unifying the, the left in Britain mm. um, has really been smashed now. So what is to be done now? Like, what, what, what's your view? I mean, you've, you've talked about starting a new party. Um, what's it, I, I mean, one thing, that, you know, that, and there's this debate between starting a new party and others want to stay in the Labour Party and to try and mm. I don't know do a kind of rear guard action I suppose but one thing that's and people talk a lot about how impossible it is to for a new left-wing party to make any significant electoral gains mm. under the first past the post system you know we don't have any kind of uh, proportional um, representation system in in the parliament um, and how difficult it is, but people remember how people forget. I think too often, like uh, how the Labour Party started in the first place. Of course, yeah, indeed. I mean, no. we had a political duopoly in the country between the, the Conservative Party and the Liberals, and uh, and Labour was founded in 1900 and ultimately replaced them. And really, within a sort of a couple of decades. I mean, I know that sounds a long time, and I think things could move even more quickly. It is very difficult in the first past the post system. There's no doubt about that. But there's no means of wrested control of the Labour Party. We, the mechanisms are not there. When we had a mass membership and a left-wing leader, we still didn't control the Labour Party. The Labour Party was still controlled by the Parliamentary Labour Party and the uh, and the uh, bureaucracy, the, you know, the bureaucracy yeah. and the National Executive Committee, which is predominantly you know, right wing and it's not democratic. I mean, only 25% of the seats are elected by the members, the rest are appointed. The leader has a, a large uh, contingent that uh, he appoints to the, uh, to the committee uh, and trade union leaders who are predominantly right wing, regrettably. And uh, so it's impossible to get a majority on the National Executive Committee. And even when the decision of the National Executive Committee goes against what the leadership want, they just circumvent it as we've just seen with Jeremy Corbyn as we saw in fact when Jeremy was the leader and I was reinstated you know I mean it's just I, uh, so I think the only hope for us whilst it's not easy but the only hope for us is to build a new movement and it has to be a a twin strategy in my, my view I don't think putting all our eggs in an electoral vehicle and an electoral strategy is going to take us very far because you almost always end up being disappointed by and let down by 
those who end up representing notionally uh, the, uh, the you know the party the movement in in parliament in local authorities and i therefore think it's essential that we have a, a social movement a mass movement uh, to give you strength in depth in that sense i think that's the most that's the first priority we need to be mobilizing people to raise expectations to raise political consciousness and you know the blueprint for this in many ways i think is in uh, what's happened in latin america where we've seen you know thanks really to uh, hugo chavez and and what and what you know the socialists achieved in in venezuela uh, with all the pressures that were applied upon them um i mean they made huge strides in terms of eradicating illiteracy um, massive healthcare improvements massive reduction in poverty and so on and right across the piece and then you look just recently to what happened in in bolivia with the cia back coup there just a year ago and because the mass as it's known in bolivia were able to mobilize on the ground and essentially brought the country to a standstill through through a process of you know industrial action civil disobedience and forced the regime to hold fresh elections and then the socialists came storming back with an overwhelming majority yes they booted out evo morales uh, the previous year but they came storming back but if if all of their eggs were in a in a in a sort of political party basket in an in an electoral strategy then uh, you know that they wouldn't have had that 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 strength in depth but i think that's true in a number of countries in in, in latin america actually and it's been wonderful to behold i mean in, in chile you know the pinochet uh, regime in the, the chile chileans have, have just voted out the the constitution you know the pinochet constitution which is which is a great wonderful step you know to see to see happen you know and uh, the uh, you know in venezuela again i mean in spite of all the pressure that's been applied to them um you know they've they've withstood that i mean one of the things i was arguing i was just going around with what we referred to as the democracy roadshow when we were talking about democratizing the labor party i was arguing that you know we need to learn those lessons and i was reminding people of, of what chavez did and you know they got armed militias uh, in the barrios and uh, you know there's one and a half million i think you know armed citizens as it were who were totally in support of the kind of you know the, the bolivarian revolution there and um, I mean, the military, of course, is on side as well. I was waiting for the Daily Mail or one of the gutter press to run an article saying that um, Corbyn ally calls to for for arming uh, for armed militias in uh, in the in the country. I was not actually making that point. I was just making the point <laughs> that we need to kind of, as it were, be inspired by that model. That you know, mobilising, inspiring, raising political consciousness amongst the masses is what is crucial. So the people feel that they're that they're part of this movement. The thing I've always been passionate about is trying to do politics with people, not to people. Bringing people with. We're supposed to be a working class party. We're not. I mean, I say we. I should get out of that habit. I'm not in the Labour Party now. But the Labour Party was supposed to be a working class party, and it absolutely isn't anymore. I remember in 2014, after the local elections, when Miliband was the leader and the PLP, a meeting where we'd um, won some local authorities with the support of predominantly in, in London middle class uh, voters and they were venerating this and saying it's great oh you know they were like quite pleased that we were no longer really a working class party and that our support base came from the middle class now i'm not against middle class voters supporting us of course you want that but to abandon the working class and to be making a virtue out of it is what they were doing i mean they were crowing about this fact in the in this plp uh, parliamentary labor party meeting uh, i've left a nasty taste in my mouth i must say and uh, this is a transatlantic phenomenon, isn't it? Because this is exactly what yeah. you see in, in the US. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The Democrats, Absolutely. isn't it? Completely. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond the level of pandering um, to this like mythological centrist, you know, yeah. moderates yeah. in the Democratic Party, mm. um, while not just abandoning the working class and the majority of, you know, the constituents who want yeah. basic things like you know, universal healthcare and, yes, and good schools and, but telling the working class and progressives and real leftists that if they don't vote for the centrist, um, then there, it's a vote for Trump, for example. Yeah. Once well, we got Biden gets in, oh, yeah. that's great. We have a mandate now. We don't yeah, actually yeah, need exactly. to push any progressive policies because everyone Absolutely. voted for the center. I mean, it's complete. Like, yeah, indeed. Yes, same phenomenon here, exactly the same phenomenon here. Yeah. I mean, and, um, in fact, the, the vote to leave the European Union, um, which is actually in any event a capitalist club, and it's never really worked in the interests of, of working class people in this country. 
despite what the elites tried to tried to, to tell us. And they were saying in the Brexit referendum, going on the TV, saying, well, you know, it's going to be the worst for you if you don't vote to remain, because economically, you know, you'll be far worse off. And a lot of people, millions of people say, well, how much worse off could we be? You know, we, we've got, we are rather unemployed or we're in a precarious job. You know, my kids have got a saddle with debt if they go to university. Um, those, uh, you know, who don't go to university, they're struggling to get a job. You know, they're stuck at home. They can't afford a house. They can't rent. They're too renting and the private sector is too expensive. There's no public housing now. They've been flogged off and none have been built. And we had 13 years of a so-called Labour government to, to deal with this. They had no industrial strategy. And, and that, you know, people in desperation, you know, kind of ended up voting that as, as two fingers really salute to the to the establishment uh, to say them just you know they've had enough of that and then of course Labour at the last election ended up committing itself to another referendum and, and campaigning for, for Remain and to remain inside the European Union I mean no wonder they lost the election as badly as they did it was a catastrophic uh, strategy and similarly with the Democrats speaking from across the Atlantic here it looked to me very clear that people were you know voting uh, for uh, Trump and you know out of desperation almost really I mean because Hillary Clinton was seen as the, you know, archetypal Wall Street establishment figure. Um, and Biden's not much better, of course. Of course, they had four years' <laughs> <No>. experience. But <laughs> the swamp is coming back. The real yeah, swamp. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I mean, uh, um, they should have, I mean, you know, I suppose from the European standards, Bernie Sanders is, is not a, a particular radical, but I guess from the US, in the US context, he was somebody who was not afraid to speak about socialism. And uh, right. I think, uh, in my opinion, I don't know what you think, but I think had he been the candidate, I think they would have had a far better chance of winning against um, Trump and, and probably getting, coming out with a better result in, uh, against him on this occasion rather than, yeah. rather than Biden. But unfortunately, he, like Jeremy, ended up capitulating That's right. and uh, pull, pulling out. And, um, yeah, and, and what does he get for it? There's no indication that no, he exactly. or any progressives, for that matter, are going to get any no. you know, cabinet positions. So it's... Uh, <laughs> No, indeed. I mean, I hear that there is a movement for a, a people's party in the States now, which is gaining a bit of ground. Though I don't know how much traction that's getting. I mean, and yeah. we're in a similar situation here that we need to we need to build an alternative because, the, right. you know, like in the States, we have two political parties that are two establishment parties, two neoliberal parties, two war machines, essentially, yeah. um, two sides of the same coin. Mm. It's offering no choice. I mean, politics should be about choice. Yeah. And uh, we, you know, we, we've got to, in my opinion, as I say, build a movement and, and then build a build an electoral vehicle. If they expel Jeremy, I think the the potential for a new political party will may have to be expedited somewhat. Um, and I think there will be because a lot of people have left the Labour Party already, and uh, even more will do so. A lot have left after or already gone. A lot more left after he was suspended, and. Uh, even more will go if he is if he is um, expelled. But frankly, the socialist campaign group should have been stronger. They haven't even got a unanimous view on supporting Jeremy, let alone. I mean, they never supported me. They never supported any victim of the witch hunt. Just kept the head down. Crazy. Uh, but their support has been half-hearted for for Jeremy. I mean, frankly, if they were serious about solidarity, they would have withdrawn. They would have resigned the whip on mass. Uh, and said, we're not having this, you know, and we, we will stand in solidarity with Jeremy. This is not acceptable. They should have been leading. They're not leading. They're just following on the coattails. Um, it's like, you know, it's unacceptable. I mean, and uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I don't know. People think I was a fool, really, for speaking out the way that I did. But as I've already said, I don't, I don't regret that because if you have a platform, I think it's incumbent upon you to use it. Um, would you like to tell our listeners where they can learn more about, I know you've got a, a YouTube channel, Resistance TV. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a website as well. If they, if they, if they Google uh, ResistFest, um, www.resistfest, they, they will be able to find our website. Um, if they uh, look out for Resistance TV, uh, we have a, a weekly YouTube live stream where we cover a range of different um, issues. And this movement that we're trying to create, we're very much an internationalist movement, a very much an anti-imperialist movement. We want to ensure that we are not just focusing on the important issues affecting Britain. Clearly, that's important. You know, the working class in this country in particular has been has had a very raw deal for 40 years. And it's essential that you know that we address that. I mean, students had a bad deal. You know, the public services in, in meltdown, in crisis. So we are covering those issues. Of course, we are. But we're also covering international issues. I mean, a couple of three weeks ago, we had some activists on from Nigeria, 
uh, speaking live to us from uh, from Lagos about the end SARS campaign, the special entry robbery squad, which had uh, terrible police violence against peaceful protesters. In fact, they, they, they'd shot dead a number of peaceful uh, protesters um, in, in Nigeria. You know, we've covered issues about uh, Latin uh, America. We had a session uh, with, um, a joint session actually, with uh, an organization called Labour Against the Witch Hunt on what is meant by Zionism, what is Zionism, you know. So, so, we're, so we're trying to, you know, cover a range of different uh, areas and uh, we're, we're on, uh, from, from international issues to, as I say, uh, local domestic issues, we're on uh, every week, every Wednesday, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. So uh, we'll be on this week. We're speaking about animal rights, actually, in the 21st century, this, this Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So if people are interested in that, they'll be able to look us up and uh, they'll be able to tune in and, uh, and hopefully they will, uh, they will join in and, and help us grow this movement. Great. Thanks very much, Chris. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much, Chris. No worries. Thanks for having us on. Best of luck. Cheers. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>